0: This is the Send Talks podcast from Galdards.
1: So in this episode, we're going to switch things around a little bit. So usually it's Salasay who's doing the main bit of the interviewing. Um, this time around, it's going to be me. And the reason for that is one of the questions which has come up a lot in our, our Facebook lives and also in um, kind of the feedback we've had from parents is how interested they are that Salasay used to be a local authority lawyer, and to kind of understand how, say, a local authority is thinking when it receives an appeal to the same tribunal about um, an education matter, um, like a tribunal appeal. So, we're going to swap it around, we're going to see how it goes. And I think, by way of backgrounds, so, so say, you joined us about two years ago, is that right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that feels like it's been a lot longer.
1: Yeah, it really does. And. When Salise originally joined us, we used to be on the other side of the table. So we used to do appeals to the central tribunal, and sometimes we'd come across Salise on the other side. And I think most of our team decided not only was Salise a brilliant lawyer and someone that I think really cared about the cases from the other side and wanted to ensure that the kids that we were supporting were getting the right support. She's also a very good... Uh, respondent lawyer. So we thought, hang on a second, instead of being against say, why don't we turn this kind of potential poacher into a gamekeeper? And I'm pleased to say that we were able to do that. And it's been brilliant because I think it's enhanced all of our practices in terms of understanding effectively what the opposition appeal will do and what the kind of mind thinking is. And we thought it'd be good to share it with all of you, really. So... yeah. I think say, tell us about a bit about when you got involved in terms of being a local authority lawyer, the reasons, and then just tell us a bit about how a local authority works and yeah. your role in it.
0: So um, I actually trained on the appellant side. So I was a trainee for, uh, for a small boutique firm um, in central London, working for parents and appellants. Um, so it was very odd going to the other side. But I was kind of in a bit of a difficult spot with where I was with that firm in terms of the fact that they well, it was a very, very, very high pressure. Um it was not a nice environment to work with, shall we say? They don't exist anymore, so it's fine. I'm not I'm not I'm just
1: not... saying the word toxic
0: environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, be, uh, trying to be really nice about it. But it's not working. Um but the local authority that I transferred over to happened to have a vacancy and it was my home local authority that I kind of was, was born and brought up in. Um, but it was also a really, um, nice local authority, if I can say that. And I'm always really cautious whenever I do say stuff like that, because I know that, you know, relationships with local authorities are very difficult. Um, they have got their own agendas, their own policies to follow, and they obviously have to look after the public purse. But with this local authority, my head of SCN, so my professional client, so the SEN department that would be, had um, a child with SCN themselves, um, which I found very, very helpful for me for when I was trying to explain why decisions should be a certain way or when I was trying to give advice, um, that understanding of parents was there and um, that sympathy that empathy was there and um, and the local authority was also i was very lucky in that i had i they listened to my advice a lot so a lot of the cases that actually went to hearings were cases based on they were either really high value um which frankly adam you and i both know that when cases are high value it's more than likely that they are going to go to tribunal. So I'm talking about your residential cases, your aching days, yep. your
1: extended appeals. Nobody wants to sign off on that, really.
0: No. And the reason why they go to, they tend to go to tribunal is exactly because of that. It's because, and we explain this to our clients all the time, no one wants to explain why they okayed a placement for £150,000 per annum for one child. It is far easier to say that we went to tribunal, we fought it, and the judge ordered it far easier to justify to your counselors when you go to sort of a meeting in at the end of the financial year
1: isn't it? so I mean taking a step back to kind of explain that so when you you have an appeal to the Senate tribunal, particularly I think when you're dealing with a, an appeal against sections BF and I of an EHC plan or um, in relation to social care as well, effectively the the local authority although it should be thinking about what is necessary to meet a child's special educational needs in the school that they require, and a lot of the thinking will be um, over the public purse. And whilst the law is very clear that it should be about the child, and then I think the public purse comes second, obviously, in reality, we find a lot of local authorities are judging their decisions on what they want to spend and what they think is reasonable. And when you have a case, as, as Salazar was saying, which is high profile, say, that we mean an expensive provision the local authority is usually more likely to fight it because it, it needs to justify that cost yeah. and i think a lot of the time heads of S. N. departments would be concerned talking to their councillors if they'd made a financial decision which looks like a very high amount of money without them at least doing their due diligence and resisting i think an appeal to tribunal is of that all right
0: yeah of course of course it is because Everyone, you know, the local authority is, everybody has their pot, if you like, everybody has their budget and the SCN department obviously spends a lot because their duties are absolute because they must provide what's what's in the education and healthcare plan, what the child reasonably requires and any provision they must meet and it doesn't matter how they meet that. So for example, sometimes um, what we would do when I was at the LA, is if there was um, no speech and language therapy, for example, in a school and it wasn't integrated, even if it was in a specialist school, if there wasn't um, enough standard provision within the school, what I would say was, well, pay for a private therapist to come in and deliver that therapy and that's what would happen. So everything in B and F was co- was completely covered off in, in that respect, so those children were those therapies that they needed um yeah so
1: i mean from what i see there's i always felt sorry for like well i always do feel sorry for local authority lawyers because they do know the law but they are kind of a little bit hamstrung by their heads of department yeah. and their clients
0: yeah and you found my instructions right so
1: exactly so to explain that um when you're kind of representing, you have instructions and you have to really comply with that unless they are unlawful instructions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're asked to resist an appeal and there's a, a chance that you can resist, you have to do so, even if I suppose the chances of success are very limited. And I think, I, I think there is a problem within local authorities about kind of understandings, um, SEM, which means that when it finally gets to San Jose, or it did get to San Jose, Usually, the case is in a state already, and someone has made a policy decision rather than a decision on individual needs. Yeah.
0: So, I would get the cases when they were issued um, to tribunal. So, we would get notification of a new appeal. So, I'd have to look through that, make sure that there was, you know, take instructions and say, okay, why did you refuse this school? They want some more speech therapy. Why are we saying no to it? What does our speech, lang- speech and language therapist say? Um, and I'd take those instructions and, and um, run with the case there. Um, it was, you know, that we didn't get very many cases because the local authority that I worked for was a nice local authority. We're a small small local authority as well, so we we didn't cover vast amounts of spaces.
1: Was it a nice local authority or well-organized local authority? It
0: was authority? a well-organized local authority with good people. So my head of SEN, who had a child with, with ASD, in fact, and who understood, I think around the beginning of um, of my time there, there was someone who wasn't listening to my advice and I refused to go to tribunal because I said, I'm not going to be professionally embarrassed in front of judges who know us because we frequently go to tribunal and we've all got a reputation. So I don't want the judges to know me as bringing very weak cases to tribunal. And that was a weak case.
1: So just to clarify, not know, know you as a local authority, because you you're always at tribunal, but know you as an individual lawyer.
0: Yes. As an individual lawyer. So they knew us, um, they knew me from, you know, before and sort of, they knew that I'd transferred over. Um, and I said, I'm not going to be professionally embarrassed by this. You can get, you can get a barrister to do it. Um, we lost the case. And from that point on, I think I kind of, earned the respect that, you know, they were, my advice was frequently followed. And it was very rare that we lost at that, from that point on, because we, which goes back to what Adam was saying about turning the poacher into a gamekeeper, because I wouldn't, and I still don't now tend to take cases to tribunal if I'm not fairly certain that we're going to win, really.
1: And I think a lot of parents think when they're dealing with, say, a, a local authority lawyer in that situation, that they're always going to push you to a hearing, but we have a duty, both parties, to try and discuss cool. cases and, you know, look at compromises, see if we can kind of address the issues. And that, what always kind of amazed me about, I suppose, dealing with your local authority was if they realized that, you know, they didn't have much of the case, they would look at that and think, okay, how do we get somewhere in the middle? Maybe as a happy compromise, maybe, you know, we don't have a case and we have just got to look at kind of agreeing this." Yeah. Um, and I felt that there was a real kind of thought of let's see how we can resolve this instead of this, just resist for the sake of resisting. You do see that across a lot of local authorities. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. You mentioned, um, case officers are not being very good. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to find that the case officers are, are given a bad deal because they're not really trained by anything.
0: They are, you're right, they are.
1: And they are just literally lip service to the people above them. Yeah, um,
0: they are. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we should all feel sorry sorry for them because sometimes they do do a really shoddy job, but Adam's right, they aren't given a fair deal because you've got a case officer who is probably dealing with a caseload of about 100 students, Um with education and healthcare plans, all of whom have to have annual reviews once a year, obviously, as you know, once every 12 months. Um, Their phone is constantly ringing. They constantly have to be making these updates. You know, they've got secondary transfer deadlines. They've got post-16 transfer deadlines. And often, I think the qualifications that they require is often just degree level or relevant experience. So That there's no really training for them to do what it is that they do, and some of them have some educational experience. Some of them maybe have done a teaching degree. Some of them may have, you know, started it, done some sort of speech and language therapy training somewhere, XTAs, etc. But they're kind of thrown in the deep end. And if there's one job that I wouldn't want to do it's being a case officer because that phone does not stop and and they're listening to a small case officer not not lawyer but they're they're listening they're listening to really frustrated parents all the time um rightly rightly frustrated parents all the time um and they have very little power to change it and it must be really frustrating
1: well i also think you kind of i don't know what the word would be but i think by doing this you know, day in, day out, your kind of ability to kind of be compassionate and, and see what's in front of you and, and feel the case disappears, yeah. um, it becomes just another number.
0: you case-hardened, really, aren't yeah. you?
1: Um, And I, I worry about that, but I also worry about a lot of the case officers about the kind of training and experience that they get. So you said they might have some experience in education, but you tend to think that they've been trained internally. So they are usually going on our local authorities' agenda effectively, yeah, uh, maybe differ and delay, and um, and basically, they are trained on on the understanding that the authority wants to uh, you know protect the, the public purse rather than the individual needs. So you do get quite a lot of uh, I think fake news coming through, yeah, um, yeah, from those departments. Gaps
0: yeah, in their knowledge, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and I, I think a lot of parents originally, at least. You know, they really believe that because in your head, you think that the local authority something that you pay money towards is really on your side, but it's not really. It's on the side of saving money. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, when I was thinking about today and doing a, the kind of podcast on this, the other side of what I was thinking of is almost a kind of championship manager kind of approach of if I was taking over a local authority, what would I do to change it? And I thought with you being the local authorities lawyer, or ex lawyer, so to speak, you were probably in a good position to kind of look at that. So I think one of the things with case officers is better training and probably better external impartial training might be the best yes. way forward. Yes. Uh, well,
0: I used to do that for them. Oh really? Yeah. So <laughs> so I used to annually I would train all the case officers because there was a high turnover, of course. Um, so, and I was there for four and a half years. So annually I would train them. Um, I got barristers in to train them as well during COVID. I got two barristers in and we gave like almost like a half a day help slash whole day training. I can't remember what it was. COVID was such a merged blur in all of our lines. but, uh, we gave training. I would hold monthly, almost multidisciplinary meetings for all of the live tribunal appeals. So I would make sure that I had decision makers there. So the head of SEN, if there was a particularly difficult case, I would make sure that case officer was there. I'd have someone from speech and language therapy, someone from occupational therapy, and uh, we had a someone from the CCG that ran those departments as well as a go-between. I've forgotten their name and it's changed recently. Uh, designated clinical officer, it's changed slightly now. It's a slightly different name. Um, I tried to get someone from social care, but they just, they showed up for like
1: two weeks. Well, they just wouldn't show up anymore. That's what I wanted to go on to in a minute was yeah. talking about actually local authority departments working with each other. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think what you were saying is already good practice in terms of case officers being trained. But I think one of the, the things that I always saw in reality is if you did see quite a good case officer who did understand what they were doing and maybe doing a good job, I think there was two things that always worried me. One, they wouldn't last very long at the authority because yes. they'd be nabbed up by someone else. Yes. Or they would, they would have co- probably cost the authority money, so they would become quite unpopular with their managers. Um yeah. If they are looking at kind of advising, I suppose parents in the right way in relation to their rights and yeah. what they should do next. So I think there is a, the balance isn't right in the sense that the, the case officers. One, I don't think they are paid enough for the roles that they do. So it means keeping hold of people who have, I suppose, been upskilled and understand what they're doing is really hard. But equally, the incentive for the local authority to ensure that those people have the right training and understand what they're doing and making the right decisions isn't there. Because yep. if they are doing their job properly, it probably would mean that there are more children with EHC plans and with more support. Yep. And we've always talked about how convoluted that is because... If you don't put the right support in, particularly early on, the kind of damage that you're having to undo later on is quite significant. Whereas if CAFE's officers were better trained at, I suppose, understanding things at an earlier stage and early intervention was put into place, a lot of the kind of damage, I suppose, to someone's education and the lack of progress they would be making would be removed. So it's great to hear with your authority that was that kind of thinking. But i imagine you still saw probably three or four case officers in a year go through um the same number of cases and being replaced over and over again
0: it was a, each year at much my, at my annual training the faces were completely different adam that's how bad it was um there would probably be about three case officers that i would recognize from the previous year that year otherwise there was a constant turnover um and that's part of parents frustration right they'll say I'll have clients come to me and say, well, we've had three case offices in the last three years. Um, and while I always say, I'm really sorry to hear, but it's quite common as unfortunately, yeah, it's a lot worse. But, um, I mean, another thing I do is to have more of them as well as the training. Look, I think that the thing that, and I remember being in, I remember being in a meeting that the director of children's services for those of you don't, that's a big deal with local authority. Um, that's literally one level below the CEO. So um, the director of children's services asked me to come along to this big meeting. I was given a microphone, it was similar to this one, it was on the table. And she said, I want you to explain um, what the SCN department's duties are to everybody so everybody knows. And I explained it all. and she said to me i remember her saying to me that's just not realistic she said it's just not realistic what our duties are um because we don't have the money and i very brazenly at the time i don't think i quite realized how important she was i said to her with the greatest of respect that is a problem that you need to take up with central government yeah it's not that's just the law
1: um, no, and I totally agree with that. And I think we're looking at our model, kind of like championship ma- uh, manager model. The money is an issue. So yeah. I think well, the last time I looked into this, there's a lot of um, information where I think the Tory government at the moment has said funding has is, is increased significantly. But actually, if you look at the funding increase, it's basically to put the education budget back to what it was in 2010 before austerity really hit. So really what you've done is increased it back to what it was previously, 10 years later with austerity.
0: Yeah, and the, not taking into account all the inflation that's happened since then as well.
1: Yeah, and also the, the difficulty is actually getting all the support in place. Yeah. So lots of schools at the moment, they have less a learning support assistance um, shortages because it's, it's easier for those people to go and work in a supermarket at the moment yeah. and be paid better than it is to work in a school.
0: Of course, unfortunately, and you know that I mean I think I find that's the that was always the main problem as as an LA solicitor. first of all I think the main problem as an LA solicitor was trying to break through the the processes and procedures that have been into place in in place for years and are just archaic and one response that I that I kind of come came to hate and still hate now whenever someone says it to me in any walk of life is. When I ask the question, why are you doing this in this way? And the response that I get is, that's just how we've always done it. That is not an answer to that question. That is an excuse as, as to why it's not better. Um, there must be reasoning behind why you're doing something in a pro If you're not thinking about it, then it's just, it's, it's useless, right? Um. So they were, the local authority I worked for were quite good when I would say, I think we should do this, I want to do this. And they were quite receptive to that, which I really appreciated. It's probably why I stayed there for so long as well. Everything kind of went quite, quite as smoothly as it could when I was there to be completely honest with you. Um, but there is the, the, the second, the second hardest thing I, I'd say is. that our duties the so local authorities duties are in direct conflict with the public purse. If, if they had the money there, then I don't think there would any, be any problem putting into place all the specific, specified and quantified provision. But it's in direct conflict with their lack of funding, unfortunately. And you, we can see it now as well, can't we? I mean, there's a local authority, I'm not going to mention names, but that just we're having to issue pre-action protocol letters almost on a weekly basis because they don't have enough educational psychologists to go out and do assessments so that they can make a decision as to whether or not an education healthcare plan is going to be issued or not or what's going to be in it and it's it it's just it's just so it's so strange i just think what you've just you've just not got enough eps go and get private eps because you've got a statutory statutory deadline but obviously they can't because it's because it's about the money
1: it hasn't got enough funding to actually make the system work the actual legal system is very good. The idea of an EHC plan, the law, the code of practice, all of that sort of things is where I actually think it should be. Yeah. Obviously, I think it needs to be troubleshooted to make the system better. And you know, we we've talked about that previously about how you could make what we have as a system much more uh, smoother and yep and more accountable um, in terms of local authority failures. But the basics are there. And there's also still this idea that, you know, there's these terrible parents out there trying to play the system to get their kids ridiculous provision, which doesn't exist. I've been doing this for 16 years. I've never met one of those parents. Um, The reality is, is there is not enough provision out there. There's not enough decent schools. And what you were saying about, you know, we've always done it this way. There is no kind of thinking or changing the system. Yeah. So the, the classic one I had was I met a head of a SCN department and knew um, into the place in a um, local authority outside of London. And what, when we met up, the reason we met up was to actually talk about how we might be able to work against each other but with each other. Um, yeah. Agree disagreeably.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's of benefit to, to our clients and it's of benefit to the local authority... And it avoids that kind of a pill situation, the stress of it, of yeah. course, we'd always look at that. And I went to the meeting at, at, you know, a little bit excited, quite interested to see what the suggestions were going to be. And I was expecting new innovative ideas. Instead, what I was head, um, hit with was we have got this really good idea. We're going to attach these new units at, attached to mainstream secondary schools for children with autism. And by doing that, these kids can come out of their special schools and attend mainstream. And I just sat there and I was just like Sounds
0: like the green paper. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I sat there and I was like, You've just missed the complete concept. There are some children out there. They just can't be educated in classes of thirty. The environment of a large secondary school is just not enough.
0: It's just it's just the same old story. I mean, saying that, what what we did in my local authority, interestingly enough, is um from so from when I first got there I was I said, you know, we need more special schools. We need proper special schools that not this generic, excuse my phra- phrasing, dumping ground for everybody with SEN.
1: Yeah,
0: um, the so elephant it, grade. Yeah, exactly. Specific schools for children with specific types of ASD or MLD or um, physical difficulties, for example, et cetera. Um, and they did it, they did it. So by the time I left, one new school, one brand new MLD school was built, um, secondary, uh, because the main problem was secondary really, because primary, a lot of, you know, a lot of our children that we have, they are, they can get by at primary school a lot of the time. And um, SCN kind of tends to, um, especially like autism, ADHD, sort of tends to come through around six, maybe seven, something, you know, so by the time everybody gets their ducks in a row. Um, but the secondary schools were more pertinent. So we had an MLD school that was built, um, maximum eight students to a class, uh, yearly intake of about 30, something like that, 40 maybe, something, I can't remember. Um, and we um, had commissioned and agreed, they made an application, the department made an application for funding with senior officers, and we got that funding. For a new free school for high functioning ASD children as well. So by the time I left, that was in the process of being built. Um, so that that is new, that is innovative, that is people listening to what I was saying and what other members of the departments were saying in that we need more specialist schools. If we want to keep it's a it's a long term investment, right? So if we want to keep these children in um borough first of all and in um places where we are commissioning those places we need those places to be better so we need to spend more now make sure we've got good provisions and then get these kids in into there um you know
1: yeah i mean i I think it makes a lot of sense because the follow-through and this is we always talk about follow-through but it's every kind of study shows that early intervention is key yeah but also recognising that not everyone is, is properly appropriate to go to a mainstream school. If we looked at what a mainstream school really is, the idea of a mainstream education kind of bore itself out of the Industrial Revolution, and it's kind of based on a factory. So the idea is, is you, you teach everyone, and usually you hit the average of that um, class. Yep. But if you fall outside the average and you're kind of you can't access that, the idea of of how you meet that need seems to be let's take a learning support system when that person maybe put a bit more bolt on provision but fundamentally it might work in some cases but there are always going to be um, children out there where the mainstream environment itself is not right um you know it's it's it and getting that understanding through is still really difficult and i agree with you more local authorities should be doing what your, your previous authority were doing, which is build more provision. Um, I know it seems expensive, and it probably is in the short term, but in reality, if you can address those needs, you're probably going to have people who will become adults who can actually access society, hold down good jobs, or if, they, if their needs are too great for that, live as independently as they can. Yeah, exactly. And that should be the aim. But because there is no kind of proper follow through, and I don't think there is any proper studies on this, you tend to find that people do not get the intervention earlier on enough. The deficit in their learning gets worse, which impacts on their mental health. So they're disengaged with learning. So before you've even gonna start trying to make help someone make progress, you've got to undo that. Yeah. And if you're missed in the system, and there's lots that we see which get missed, then where do you go from there? You might be lucky, I suppose, in the future that you are able to kind of find a career and kind of move on anyway. But we also know statistically as well, and I'd, I hate saying this because I feel like um, I'm saber-rattling and scaring people, and I don't want to do that. But the, the reality is, is if we look at people who are not in work, um, employment or education, and if we look at, say, the prison system as well, in, in terms of people with Mental health difficulties, who haven't got basic reading and writing skills, is significant. So, th-
0: diagnoses that haven't been diagnosed. Yeah, at all. I think there's going to be a study on that coming out. So I saw something on the television.
1: Yeah, and I hope that's the case it's- because I think what we've got there is the the aftermath of not providing the right provision. Yeah. At an early stage, because there has been no follow through, we've failed a load of people, and as a consequence, they have not been able to access society and they haven't been able to contribute and that's what we should be looking at we should look at the outcome which is going to happen if we don't put the provision in place
0: so let's take your kind of step not standard cuz none, none of our kids are standard but your kind of the common um high adhd type profile um of a young person high anxiety high adhd um if that if that child isn't if that I, I, if that um SEN isn't addressed in that child from a young age then that that's the only route for them really you can see it them going straight into prison if they're not if if that's not addressed at a young stage i've got several young people um that i'm dealing with at the moment where we are trying to get them the placements that they so desperately need and deserve because of that type of a because of that type of adhd that they've got and i think it's so like i'm actually so angry now because i think local authority if you just give us what we're asking for because they need it and here's all the reports we are potentially avoiding that in the future and that is going to cost you so much more than what i'm asking for from you now um it's, well,
1: it's that short ter- yeah, termism isn't it
0: excitedness
1: there's no i i don't know about you but i don't see very much in terms of clear strategy for the future the other thing we didn't talk about is the fact that other departments have a, a role to play in this, and they just don't. So to ex- explain to kind of our, our, our listeners, with an EHC plan, it's an educational, health, and care plan. But actually, the only people who have any legal duties in it are the local authorities' education departments, although it's the local authorities at home. And? Although if, if you outline, say, social care provision or medical um, provision in a plan, they are provided by other services and they have a best endeavors duty. What we tend to find, and it's always been a historical problem, is those departments and all the NHS is jealously guarding its own pot and is hugely resistant to actually funding their side of the pot, which means that the local authorities' pot is very small and get smaller because these other departments won't do their job properly. And we just need a new system. We need a new way of thinking about it. I think what you were saying earlier about that kind of multidisciplinary approach, that's the one we should be using. Yeah, it should be. And I think if I was looking for a change with the EHC plans, it would probably be looking at making um, you know, the social care and medical care provisions legally enforceable. Yeah. I think it would stop that happening. And obviously we need to talk about accountability, but I think if we start that we'll be here all day, wouldn't we?
0: Yeah, I can turn around now. On <laughs> <laughs> um
1: well look, so I say thank you for kind of giving us that insight into cool. local authorities. I actually think this is one of the podcasts that if anyone has any thing that we haven't covered today, really, and they'd like us to do another kind of podcast, yeah. I think we've got probably another um, episode to do on this.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, if you if you kind of have specific questions or want us to do something else, just let us know. And I feel kind of I feel kind of a little bit bad because I feel like if we bash the local authority structure for for some also the best part of 40 minutes but the thing with the way that my mind and your mind works is we come from a like a commercial background we come from the 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 uh, private practice right so when we see things that are inefficient and we see a process or or a setup and and it's not working right it's not as efficient as it should be our mind just looks for ways to make it better and there's so much that we could make better in local authorities and the structure and everything. And the fact that no one does it is, is really, really frustrating.
1: I think that probably putting an early intervention and recognizing needs earlier, long-term saves the local authority more money. Um, and there's some great examples of that with my local authority, where my, my son has an EHC plan, even before he had an EHC plan the the local authority has a really good um system for spe- speech and language therapy so he was basically getting weekly speech and language therapy without a plan and that's pretty unheard of within yeah. most local authorities but i was thinking about it the other day what is an education it's, it's about kind of developing your ability to communicate with people in loads of different ways so um, we can do that through reading and writing and we can do that through speech so if you're putting in that early communication, which is the fundamental about being able to speak and talk to people yeah. and that intervention earlier, it's likely that your outcomes are going to be better. So that is a good example of where way you're doing things differently and making sure that provision at early stages is good. We've talked about the green paper and the good things about that. Yeah. But, you know, it shouldn't be us sitting there thinking, hey, this could be a way forward. There needs to be clear planning because I reckon that would probably save the local authority a lot of money in the end so
0: i mean if anyone from the scnd reviews is listening to this if you want us to come in and give you like a structure for change happy to do so well thank you very much thank you thanks